before we jump into this episode, we have to share two very important caveats with our listeners. The first of which is that all topics discussed in this interview are done so for entertainment and educational purposes only. Mushroom Hour does not condone the use or cultivation of any illicit or regulated substances, but we also don't condemn it. And the second caveat is that this interview was recorded in January of 2021. And since then, both of our guests, Dr. Kay Mandrake and Virginia Hayes, have reached out to us to make it very clear that they are huge supporters of the work of Oakland Hyphy, who since this interview was recorded, have had two episodes aired on Mushroom Hour. And the information that that group is bringing forth may have changed some of the conversation between the guests of this episode and myself when it comes to psilocybin content and other compounds within psilocybin mushrooms. So with that out of the way, let's jump into the interview. Hi there, welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on the Mushroom Hour podcast, we have the honor of speaking with authors Virginia Hayes and Dr. Kay Mandrake. Dr. Mandrake is a proponent of psychedelics from both a scientific and personal growth perspective. His long and varied education has mostly centered on biology, toxicology, and mycology, culminating in a PhD in microbiology, which greatly influenced his home mushroom growing methods. Virginia Hayes is a prolific writer and photographer with many books under her belt. She's a regular contributor to publications that focus on recreational drugs, and her photography has appeared in many books. She learned to grow mushrooms under the tutelage of Dr. K. Mandrake, and has co-authored two books on the growing and use of shrooms, and has since become a fierce proponent of psilocybin decriminalization and the dissemination of science-backed information relating to psychedelics. I'm excited to speak with these two Mykonauts today about their two books they've written together, The Psilocybin Mushroom Bible and The Psilocybin Chef Cookbook. Virginia and Dr. Mandrake, or Dr. K, whichever you prefer, thank you so much for coming on Mushroom Hour. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, really excited to talk to you, Darren. Well, I am really excited to talk to you guys. As I said right before the show, your works have kind of entered my consciousness because so many people I knew were devouring them and just loving everything about the books. Uh, and so I'm really excited to have the chance to speak with you both. And of course, when you get into the world of homegrown mushrooms and then growing psilocybe, there's a massive community, loads of information to cover. But before we dive into it, I am always curious, what drew you each into the world of fungi? I guess I can take that one first because mine, I guess, maybe goes back a tiny bit further. I mean, it, when I kind of recount these stories, it makes me feel quite old, but it kind of goes back <laughs> to like 2005 for me, which is the point at which it was that summer when psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms were made illegal in the UK. They used to be legal. You could buy them fresh in like stores. They were legal. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, only certain shops. It wasn't like the supermarket or whatever, but like there were certain shops, basically like smart shops, or head shops, that sort of thing. And they were made illegal. So all of the head shops were selling their stock like really, really fast because they didn't want to be caught once the shutters came down. You know, we were just like, well, you know, it's a couple of weeks before this ban comes in. Like, what's the what are they all about? And me and a few friends tried them, 
thought they were incredible you know like everyone who's experienced magic mushrooms knows the feeling for the first time and stuff and yeah it was kind of a shocker to me that this this thing that was once legal had just been made in the worst level of legal classification you can get in the uk it's the same as like heroin and cocaine and that sort of thing and then shortly after that a few years later there's a guy called david nutt i don't know if you've heard of him he does a lot of the studies out of imperial now um on psilocybin he he basically runs the psilocybin research program there he was originally an advisor for the government scientific advisory panel on classification of drugs so it was his job to provide science-based information on drug classification and he came out with two papers in short succession about four years later in 2009 that classified magic mushrooms as one of the least dangerous drugs you could possibly take on a scientific basis it was harm to the user and harm to society and they were right down at the bottom and when he came out with this empirical classification he also made claims that um taking ecstasy was less dangerous than horse riding and a few like attention grabbing headlines and the government said well cool thanks for the scientific information you're now fired so he was then fired from his his position as the trusted advisor and he went off to do great things with imperial which has been great but it was those kind of two moments together where i was like none of this is based on harm this is all based on sending messages and there's a lot of politics in this and you know it's it kind of got me quite annoyed at that point and i kind of started growing just as a almost as a act of rebellion but also because they were super fun and that's that's basically how I got into it. It's kind of a long story with a <laughs> long through line. <laughs> well, it's funny how ridiculous prohibition always seems when you actually address science. And and funny for you, it was actually the prohibition was the trigger to look more into the substance, which again is, is usually the case. Uh, and then it sounds like you were the one that kind of influenced Virginia and her early relationship or Virginia. How did you end up getting into fungi and maybe psilocybin specifically? Um, well, it's actually a strange kind of story. It actually was Dr. K, but probably probably not in the way you'd imagine. So I met K on a Thai island. <laughs> so a very small <laughs> island. Scene change over to Thailand. Got it. <laughs> in Thailand in would that have been the summer of 2008, I think. Mm. And we we went to, you know, we were young and we did all the things you do when you're in Thailand when you're young. So we went to one of the huge beach parties and we drank a lot. And my recollection of the evening is hazy, but I believe at some point I bought a mushroom shake off of somebody. And that was an experience, let's say. Like it, it really brought home to me later in my life how set and setting are really important in a mushroom experience and this was far from ideal but from what I remember I had quite a great time anyway although not when it (laughs) next the next day we had to get back to our island and I ended up like vomiting off the side (laughs) of a boat from what I recall but (laughs) I suppose in there was the kernel of like interest and I'd always been interested in kind of like going outside of the lines to find what could expand your experience or what could change how you see the world and how you see yourself. So it was a kind of natural natural step for me to take, although looking back, I probably would have taken it uh, in a different place first. 
Yeah, maybe you learned that shroom shake from a stranger on a beach in Thailand, maybe not ideal, but still you had you had a good experience. And that was one of my questions, you know, that I have for most people that I talk to about psilocybin is what was it about the initial experience or the first couple of experiences that drove you then to want to explore further and to cultivate and think I kind of need this in my life? Because obviously there's one side, the prohibition side that demonizes this as like a drug, it's horrible. And I think we all know that that's kind of made up, like you said, to project fear and kind of send messages. But what is it from an anecdotal side about your guys' experiences that really left you with the impression that you wanted more and caused you to really develop a much deeper relationship with philosophy? Yeah, I think I think for me, it was it was just sharing that experience with friends and kind of realizing, you know, we weren't able to access these things anymore. And, you know, just just realizing, you know, we had to become kind of self-sufficient if that's what we wanted continued access to. And, you know, a lot of the problems created, well, a lot of the problems with prohibition are created by prohibition itself, you know, so you create a black market for things, you know, it's a little bit different with something like magic mushrooms, but, you know, you introduce, you know, poor practices and, you know, people adding things to their drugs and and that sort of thing just to kind of there's there's no kind of control of it really so yeah it was it was the need to be safe but also still have access to the things regardless of their legal status yeah mine was similar as well i actually moved to north america shortly after my my thailand experience i feel like that should have like capital letters my thailand <laughs> experience um, a chapter defining moment <laughs> Yeah, and um, in a lot of ways, I actually think it's easier to get access to shrooms in the UK than it was, at least where I was living in North America at the time. Because as uh, Dr. K said, it had been kind of, you know, semi-recently legal. And then in the UK, we have like a a quite good disrespect for the law in a lot of ways. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I got to North America and I found it was really easy to get access to things that we wouldn't really have in the UK like Percocet and like really heavy kind of opioid things which I wasn't that interested in but I was a lot more interested in you know more natural things more kind of mind expanding things like shrooms and I just found those a lot more difficult to get hold of. I was living in North America at the time when I first tried to grow them and it did not go very well. (laughs) That was one of my next questions or how did your guys first attempts at cultivation wind up. Uh, so yours didn't go to it very well. Now, Dr. K, I know you had some background in science. So what, what was your first experience trying to cultivate magic mushrooms like? Yeah, I mean, mine didn't go very well either. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> you know, I, I it was kind of the early days of, of me sort of being at university and that sort of thing and having the freedom and the space to sort of, you know, not have to worry about hiding stuff from parents or that sort of thing when you're that like if you're younger than that age then it's it's a real problem right so yeah I was cultivating at university and I was following lots of posts on the shroomery and like trying to put all the information together and you read like hundreds of different opinions on the way to do something when you go online and it's really hard to pull out the information that's relevant so you know I was I was constantly attentive to it and this is I think a lot of new growers find this they will 
they'll just want to check it every five minutes. Like, are the mushrooms yet? Are the mushrooms yet? And um, I think I just, yeah, I, I sort of hugged it to death and like nothing really happened. They didn't contaminate, but they never grew. I don't know if I got really unlucky with a, a non-fruiting strain in the very beginning, but no matter what I did, I could not get them to fruit. But they stayed alive. They just never did anything. So yeah, I just tried again and again and kind of iteratively then got the process and, and managed to be quite successful, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, clearly you're, you're now writing <laughs> books about it. And that was part of the book that I really enjoyed was hearing about some of your guys' inspirations. You just named a big one, I think, that, you know, for anyone who follows my social media, follows the podcast, you know, I'm not an expert by any means in psychedelics. And I always direct people over to shroomery. You know, inevitably, 90% of people who are searching for hashtag mushrooms on whatever social media are looking for psychedelic varieties. And I always kind of forward them over to shroomery as such a great resource. But then you guys were also influenced, it sounded like, by the famous work by the McKenna brothers, whose pen names now that are escaping my mind, but the, the McKenna brothers and Paul Stamet's work as well about growing mushrooms. Yeah, I have to say my um, my issue is completely different to Dr. K's. Um, I do not come from a science background. I come from like a like an arts and philosophy background. So I didn't know anything about best practice. I didn't know anything about like how to avoid contamination. And they immediately were just completely mold ridden. It was like a it was a <laughs> it was a bad time. But one of the issues was that I was trying to learn from very outdated books. So. The books that I got hold of, which I believe were the most recent ones at the time, were like, you know, 70s, 70s and early 80s books. And they just didn't really speak to me. Perhaps they weren't putting the information across in a way that I could really access as a kind of non-scientific brain. But yeah, Paul Stamets was a huge, huge influence on both of us. I remember reading uh, Mycelium Running, which is, you know, just an incredible book as well. And for me, my own experience trying to grow showed me that there was like a real gap in the market for a book that would take people from the very beginning to, you know, even if we just did it to like the end of a first grow and we didn't go into the advanced methods, it would have been super, super helpful because the shroomery is great and there's a lot of information on Reddit even and there are lots of things online, but you've no idea who those people are. You've no idea if what they're telling you is correct until you do it and you find out for yourself because often the scientific background isn't given. You know, some places you do see it and that's amazing and you should always try and find like a scientific backing for what is being told to you. But yeah, it's just so difficult on the internet to kind of pass what's uh, legit and what isn't. So then your guys' own need for a cultivation manual sounds like probably got the gears turning for the psilocybin mushroom Bible then. Yeah, definitely. I think the way I kind of look at the book is it's kind of like the way that we kind of made our way through and made our failings and our mistakes through the process, just so you can follow from like start to finish. Because yeah, like Virginia said, you know, you, you'll pick up a random post on the shroomery and you don't know whether it's like good or, you know, whether it'll quite work for you. And also a lot of the things we identified is because it, it's a the shroomery was and still is mostly like us centric a lot of the stuff you have to source in the uk is a little bit difficult so we can kind of write for both audiences who might not be able to access certain ingredients and stuff i mean a lot more of it is widely available now but at the time it, it certainly wasn't 
yeah, when I when I tried to grow in North America, I could just walk a few blocks and like walk into a head shop and buy some spores, which has kind of never been the case in the UK, I don't think. And mm. yeah, we did kind of have a slightly unique perspective on like what could work in, you know, both sides of the Atlantic. And I also had worked with our publisher. So our publisher is Green Candy Press. Um, and I'd worked with them on a bunch of like cannabis growing books okay, and various other things. And there was just such a huge influx of cannabis growing books at that time. And I was like, well, what I need is a shroom, <laughs> shroom growing <laughs> book. And, you know, for years I tried to like keep it at the back of my mind. Um, and then Dr. K and I ended up living in the same country again, actually kind of, you know, around the corner from each other. And that was when we were like, well, why don't we write this book? Right. Well, and that's important to find a publisher because not every publisher, when you come knocking on the door to say, I want to grow a manual for successful psilocybin mushroom grows, uh, I'd imagine you get even more than some raised eyebrows, you get some outright rejections. <laughs> so I was wondering, you know, what kind of publisher you guys are able to find, what that relationship is like. And it sounds like that's kind of the perfect marriage of having the people who are ready to put out this kind of information, having you guys be co-located so you could actually take the time to put together the book. And yeah, I, I was saying to you before the show, I think one of the biggest things that strikes me about this book, aside from just being an amazing layout of explaining some background on just mushroom biology and the effects that psilocybin has, going through a little bit of the history of this movement, like you just said, with Shroomery and Paul Stamets, some of the other folks that really contributed to the knowledge base, and then really good step-by-step -step instructions with kind of variables mentioned in there, like, hey, you could do it this way if you don't want to do it this way, or if this is all you have access to, do it this way. Beautiful pictures. And then it's also just downright funny. Uh, <laughs> and I think that was one of the things about the book that really struck me was just how fun it was to read because you guys had such a good sense of humor laced throughout it. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that's like Green Candy really let us do that as well. Like they're very down to earth. They have like a really strong belief in information like you you should put information out there for everybody like it should just be accessible and yeah they really trusted us on tone i suppose and it just kind of kind of came out naturally but also like why not why not have a little fun with it you're gonna mess up you know you're gonna do all kinds of things that are kind of weird and funky and that's okay because we all make mistakes as as we go on this journey so why not laugh yeah definitely i think i think our approach is kind of like lowbrow humor, stupid puns, and then the occasional top shelf scientific word thrown in there for good measure. <laughs> right. It has something in there for everybody. So I'm um, just diving in then to some of that information. You know, one of the things that I struck right at the beginning that you talk about was climate. Something I never really thought of. Maybe it's because I've spent the last eight years in California where our climate doesn't vacillate that much. But what does your local climate have to do with any attempts you have at cultivating psilocybe or maybe any kind of mushrooms? Yeah, if, if you're in somewhere that's like pretty stable, the kind of further away you move from the equator, the more your temperatures are going to fluctuate over a given year. So for us, we were really conscious of sort of doing everything with the seasons, you know, so like it's the same kind of off topic but you know i i kind of bring that process in you know if i'm doing gardening or you know if i'm making food around the house or something like bringing in seasonality to it and we get a good enough window to produce a good amount 
of psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms, in a summer that will last a year or two at the very, very least. So, yeah, we just thought, you know, rather than, like, focus on ways to sort of modify your climate to make these mushrooms able to grow. I mean, obviously, if you're in somewhere where the climate is always perfect, then great. But, you know, for people who aren't, you don't need to grow all year round. You know, you might fail one summer, but the next summer will be better and you'll learn from your mistakes. And that's that's still how I grow now. You know, like everything sort of shuts down over the winter and I spend that time thinking about what to improve on next time. It gives you that sort of distance to think about things as well, rather than just keep doing things and not really having like a plan to things. Yeah, I am coming from like a background of being around a lot of people who are growing weed. People will often say to me like, well, what kind of temperature and humidity controls and all these kind of things do I need? And I kind of, I'm like Dr. K. This probably comes from living so far north compared to like uh, you, Darren. We really do have to think seasonally, but we're also both quite like sustainably minded these days. So like we... We get a like fruit and veg box, which is, you know, kind of all local and all seasonal veg. And you just adapt your life around what is in abundance at one particular time. And then you, you know, we pickle a hell of a lot of stuff. And yeah. um, <laughs> it's it's about being sustainable. It's about working with the environment that you've got. And like um, Dr. K says, you really don't need to, I mean, for like a personal use you really don't need to grow all year round you can grow some like even with one monotope i mean we got like yeah. what was it like two thousand two thousand grams wet i think we got off one monotope we i we got like six flushes off it i just threw it in a closet and it just kept flushing yeah it was right near the end of the point where we were writing up the book and we were like why won't it stop like we don't have time to consume all of these like this is crazy <laughs> but then also you can distill that into ways like i in my freezer right now i have like an alcohol extraction which I think is from that same monotope grow, which would have been like maybe five, four or five years ago now. And maybe it's not as potent as it used to be, but like, why not live like that? You know, you yeah. if, if you work against it and you make it so your house or your flat or whatever is warm enough to grow shrooms naturally all the way, all the year round, that's actually really bad for the environment too. So why not? Why not work with the temperatures that you have and the, the climate that you have and, you know, just take what you need, really. And that gets echoed throughout the book, actually. You guys do a good job of talking about sustainability considerations. And I think anyone who does any kind of DIY science, especially DIY mycology, we're all getting more and more cognizant about the waste associated with that, both energy, but also plastic materials. And I mean, some of it's unavoidable, but I think you guys do a great job of kind of pointing out that sustainability aspect. And this idea of climate was one that I just had never even thought of. And I think it'll also save people frustration if you are, you know, let's say in the nor Northeastern United States, you want to do a mushroom grow. And I know some people, you know, have time over winter breaks to get projects like that started. Well, you might not have as much success. You might be, you know, driving yourself crazy trying to grow when it's just not the ideal climate. So that that's kind of this basic and intuitive point that I really hadn't seen elsewhere that, that I, I really liked. Uh, and another thing that I liked about you, do this good job of, like I said, pointing out basic mushroom biology and then giving us kind of a little bit of the history of psilocybe as a larger genus and some of the different species in there. Now, the book focuses on psilocybe cubensis, but can you cultivate other psilocybe varieties as well? Yeah. Um, I mean, psilocybe cubensis is 
obviously the the most easy to grow but there are a variety of species if you want to really push out one one thing that we've been working with recently a lot is um some of the truffle producers they're actually actually sclerotia but you know right. from a from a mycological perspective a truffle is something that contains the spores a sclerotia is just a hardened mass of mycelium so everyone calls them truffles they're actually sclerotia but i'll continue to call them truffles because that's like common language and yeah we've been kind of working with them and you know they're they're super interesting to grow because you don't actually have to fruit anything you can do everything in a jar you know you can spawn it to bulk and then you can grow mushrooms off that but you can get psychoactive material for probably less input but it takes a little longer so Mm. you know that's an example and then there's like outdoor beds with like wood chips and things like that and that's a little more letting nature take its course and sort of administrating and kind of pushing it in the right direction so you know there are things you can do for that and if and when we update the uh, book, we will definitely include some of these methods as well because they're things we've played around with in the years since. Really great to see you guys laying out some of the different species. Yeah, some of the potential kind of outdoor cultivation slash management uh, of some mushrooms like that. Uh, but I guess why are cubensis the go-to? I mean, why are they synonymous with magic mushrooms? Yeah, so I think like you like you touched on before, I think it's a lot of the work from um terence and dennis mckenna really sort of put them on the map in the 70s i know they they devised their methods from some laboratory protocol for growing butter mushrooms and getting them to fruit in a very small space essentially how you would do like a case grain jar now and then they developed that into cubensis and like we were talking about with climate and things i think they just sit in like the perfect window for like room temperature easily controlled in a household like some of the other species you're kind of you might need it to be a little colder like the parameters aren't just quite there and i think it's just from a happy coincidence that all of those growth parameters like fit really well within kind of your standard home and i probably should have started with this at the very beginning but i do want to throw out the caveat that obviously we're not encouraging one to participate in activities that are illegal where in whatever country you're in. That was something you point out in the book as well, was being safe with this kind of pursuit. If you are interested in exploring any kind of is be cognizant of the laws where you live. I believe you guys said in Spain, uh, they're totally legal still. Yeah, and um, Portugal, I think now as well. See, some some countries are more advanced <laughs> than we are in the rest of the world with kind of understanding the futility of prohibition and trying to regulate nature. But something that is related to that, that you point out in the book, tools to do this safely, you know, because a lot of us, you guys are in the UK, I'm in North America, this is still federally prohibited. Uh, Even though some cities like near me, Oakland has quote unquote decriminalized them. There are still stories of persecution and people actually still getting in trouble for doing any of this kind of exploration. So what were some of the recommendations that you had to people that if they were interested in researching this topic or doing any of this playing with psilocybe genus, what were some ways that you you recommended to be safe about it? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things that's that's like really related to what's going on now is I think it's really easy to look at you know, the medical model or the decriminalization and think, well, you know, this is this is on its way in one direction and one direction only. So, you know, I can be more safe. I can I can tell 
you know, all of my friends about my mushroom grow and stuff. But we would still say it's still illegal for a lot of people, most people, in fact. So just don't, you know, you don't need to be like telling all your friends about it. You know, just just stay really safe. Don't think that you're going to get swept along on a wave of psychedelic acceptance because, you know, a lot of people are getting left behind with the way things are changing. So you've still got to be careful. You've still got to know your local laws and, you know, make a decision on your terms on what you're willing to sort of transgress, if you like. A lot of places, the spores are legal. Um, and that's told with the caveat of like for microscopy purposes only. So, you know, as long as you've got your microscope and you're doing your microscopy, then you're totally fine. As soon as you germinate that and produce mycelium, then you're breaking the law in, in a lot of, lot of places. So, yeah, just, just sort of keep these things in mind and don't expect like spore vendors or anything to give you advice on how to grow because you'll put them in a really difficult position legally as well because they, they can't tell you any advice on that because you know they don't want to be seen to be legally encouraging any of this even though the spores are in a gray area you know everyone's got to kind of do the do the right things and play the game sort of thing in in that case but um just think about how it affects other people think about how who you want to tell and yeah just just be more careful you'd rather be more careful and nothing happen than not careful enough and something terrible happen you know i would also add to that the internet is not like some lawless uh, wild west <laughs> place. Like, you know, WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. Right. People seem to believe that there's nothing on the internet that could affect them. Like we have quite a popular Instagram account now and yeah. you wouldn't believe the amount of people I get like trying to buy shrooms off us. And I'm like, one, we don't sell. We don't sell them. Like, it's, it would be stupid. Two, you don't know who I like. we are. You don't know who's behind that account. We could be cops. <laughs> and you're reaching out to strangers and being like, here's my home address and here's my bank account details. Can I buy some shrooms off you? Like, that's never going to be – that's just not a smart way to <laughs> do anything. Um, and on the other way, like, there are – um cops on social media sites who are will try and like catfish people into trying to buy things off them and you really have to kind of think about your digital safety in this kind of thing and i think we talk about it in the book as well anything that you use for home growing buy it in person if you can buy it in cash there are things that you can buy that will not arouse much suspicion like agar plates and things like this but if there's and it's the same as if you're growing weed. If there's anything that's really particularly obvious, try not to do it online. And, you know, things like Bitcoin can be really good for that too. Yeah. And you guys also mentioned, you know, using a VPN to proxy out your IP address if you're buying something online. And what struck me is these are actually some good protocols in the era we're living in of kind of increasing digital surveillance. I think you guys just gave some good tips for anyone who wants to browse with a little less or with a little more privacy, uh, gave some good tools and a reminder to us that. Yes, you're constantly being watched. Anything you do can usually be traced right back to your IP address. Uh, so I, I did want to put those words of caution out to people and those best practices out to people because, yeah, you do find that now where everyone just thinks that it's kind of okay to just talk about this out in the open and okay, you know, I get messages all the time, which I never even talk about philosophy. I get people asking me, oh yeah, do you sell shrooms? Do you know where I can get them? Do you know? And it just 
best to kind of stay out of that on social media or to the internet. And one of the big ones people constantly ask me about is where can I get spores? That's everyone's question. You just talked about the dance you have to do, you know, not, not saying you're doing any cultivation strictly for microscopy. What advice do you have to people though, who are looking to get spores for microscopy or for any explorations and cultivation? What are some tips there? Cause I know that's one of the main questions that people have to get started. Yeah, there's a bunch of places you can get spores from now. You know, there are lots of vendors, more and more every sort of every couple of weeks you see a new spore vendor sort of pop up with their their own website and stuff. Some of the some of the longer standing ones, I know spore works have been really good and used in the past. They've been used by the shroomery for ages as well. Like they've been going for a real long time and they're generally pretty well trusted. For others, there are, you know, you can go on Reddit and you can find, um, I can't remember, I think it's called Spore Traders now. It went down for a little while a few weeks ago. I think it's still that subreddit, but if you search around that, you'll find the active subreddit for it. But again, with that, you need to check ratings, make sure people have got like verified status you can see that other people have had things shipped and they're they're happy with what they've got just don't approach any random person on on reddit or in that sub and expect someone to help you out because obviously like we talked about with the risks but also just getting good quality spores like we've seen a lot of people get burned either getting the wrong spores or getting really contaminated spores so you know there are ways to work around both of them but you know if you buy a if you put an order in for a tomato and you get an apple, you're going to be pretty annoyed. So like, you know, you often can't find that out. It took me a whole summer once to realize that some spores that I had with the, with the wrong species. So yeah, <laughs> you've got to, you've got to be pretty, pretty careful. It's also worth saying for people in the U S California, Georgia, and Idaho spores are completely illegal. So, right. you know, don't a lot of the more reputable vendors won't sell there. So, you know, you don't have to like, there's a little bit of a safeguard there, but do your research and know that like you could be taking a risk in those states in particular. Yeah. I mean, this sounds like a lot of common sense, but it's basically just make sure you're always kind of keeping that awareness about you whenever you're engaging in any kind of buying or sourcing, really any kind of supplies, but especially spores, use that common sense, be safe about it always. So you guys make a great point of that in the book. And I just wanted to call that out uh, for the listeners. and. You know, now we kind of get into, for me, the fun part of the book where you guys do this great. I'm kind of working with this stepwise progression that you lay out in the book because I like how it's organized. Uh, But you get into basically the kit and the hardware you need for getting into the cultivation or getting into the grow. And this is something that applies both for or but also any of these tools, any of this hardware that you talk about building is something that can be used by any mushroom grower, even if you're just doing edible or medicinal. So I I was telling a friend of mine, I think this is a great book just for anyone who wants to grow mushrooms because you do a great job talking about some of the basic equipment you need. What, what is some of the hardware that you guys talk about building? Like what are some of the key pieces that every mushroom grower needs that you can build yourself at home? Yeah. So I think, um, the still air box is a, is a good one. It's not necessary for all species, um, for a long time, and for most of the work we did with the book, we had like a small sort of, you know, bathrooms are great or small sort of rooms that you can work with and sort of sanitize, get as clean as possible, you know, sort of bleach bomb the air or whatever. But after a few attempts doing that and like breathing in sort of 
bleach mist it kind of wasn't the funnest so i was like you know what? i'm just gonna make a still air box now and it's a lot easier you can kind of pop it up wherever you go you know if you go somewhere else and you want to do a bit of mushroom cultivation you bring your still air box along and you've got a sterile space to work in so i'd say you can get away with it but a still air box is super easy to make and makes for a lot more versatility when you work the only thing i would say with the still air box is make sure it's tall enough or big enough because if you suddenly find your box is the wrong size and you're kind of nudging all your jars and everything is banging against the sides it gets really annoying and claustrophobic really quickly so go for the biggest box you think you need and then add a little bit more space even then i would say but then yeah other things you know you can build terrariums yourself you can make monotubs really easily and like you say there is this like ecology of, of vendors now and i think a lot of the stuff that we did was, you know, five years ago and none of that existed five years ago. So, you know, I think it's really cool that there are all these vendors for sure. And I think there is absolutely no problem with people deciding to, you know, buy something in rather than make it because maybe they don't have the time or the space or they're just not into like, you know, making certain things. So I think it's really great that people can do that. But we'd always encourage people to at least try making it once and see how much of a hassle it is or isn't for you and then make a decision off the basis of that. And you know what too, it really makes you more involved with the process. Like, I mean, it's fun too. I I learned, you know, like when we made the stir plate, I was like, oh my God, this is magic. This is, <laughs> this is like a fan and some magnets. Like we made a thing. And I mean, it was, it must've been funny for Dr. K because he was kind of living a double life because he was working in a lab at the time and then coming to like my place <laughs> and we throw together some like, you know, MacGyvered uh, kind of thing. But it really does make you think in a different way. I think like we're, we're both huge, like uh, home cooks as well. And we really like to both do things you know, from the ground up as much as possible. And I think it just gets you involved in the correct way of thinking. Um, and also why spend why spend money if you don't have to spend it? Like, you know, a lot of people who will be reading this book will not have access to, you know, things you can buy online. Maybe they're living like in a place in the US where it's harder to get those things. But also maybe they just don't have hundreds and hundreds of dollars that they want to sink into a project that is like a brand new experience for them. So if you have like a old plastic tub and a drill, you can make a terrarium. And there is something fun that, yeah, you said it perfectly. It gets you more involved in the process. When I first got into just any kind of culturing and working in any kind of lab, it was a place in Oakland, kind of this biohacker lab space called Counterculture Labs. And we would have projects where everyone would sit down and we'd make, you know, a still air box. Or even though we had this giant laminar flow hood there, we'd still like do some of these projects because there's something just fun about like the DIY aspect, but also just this kind of like mycelium underground aspect. We're building our own tools. So I love that you lay that out in there. And I think it makes it eminently approachable for anyone. Just these basic pieces, you can build really all the kit you're going to need to do even some of the more advanced things like working with agar, like using liquid culture. You can do all of that just in a still air box and they're obviously fruiting in a monotub or terrarium. So I, I like that aspect of it. But one thing I do want to touch on, because I think it's something every mushroom grower of any stripe has to get intimately familiar with, and it sounds like in your guys, or at least you, Virginia, your early grow, you quickly encountered contamination. 
Uh, so <laughs> what, and again, this is something you do great in the book, but what are some of the vectors for contamination and what are some of the stages that it shows up and how do you guys try to monitor and root out any contaminated grows or any contaminated items before things go too far? It's one of the things that is probably very different in a kind of post-COVID world where, um, you know, the easy, the most helpful thing is to imagine yourself as a disgusting carrier of all kinds of <laughs> Which bacteria. we all think now, yeah. That's too much of imagination for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, it was, for me, coming from a non-science background, it was a real thing to learn. Like, you know, you might go, well, my preparation area is really clean but like you you were disgusting like you <laughs> your hair like your you know your breath your hands all these can things can bring in contamination and like mold is so prevalent mold will like take hold in all kinds of places so yeah we talk a lot in the book about best practice and like sterile procedure as much as you can and dr k is probably the best one to speak about yeah i think just having having a good process in place, you know, knowing why you're doing things to keep the space clean and the difference between sterile and sanitary, for example. So something straight out of a pressure cooker is sterile after it's been pressure cooked, obviously. But then inside the still air box, that's only sanitary because it's, you know, you've wiped it down, but you can't guarantee that everything, all the mold spores have been killed. So you're working with like a percentage game there of like how how well you've cleaned it. Whereas, you know, inside a pressure cooker, that's sterile. If the pressure cooker is set up right, then it's sterile. But everything else sort of outside of that is, you can only get it clean. You can't get it sterile. So yeah, just being able to monitor for things, um, you know, there are loads of pictures in the book of what a good grow looks like, what a bad grow looks like, and then just being able to recognize those. Once you get a few grows under your belt, or once you even fail a few times, you start to quickly learn what mold looks like. And, you know, you start learning about, you know, magic mushrooms and you become a specialist in mold because you're identifying all these different species. So yeah, I think just like have a, have a go don't worry if you fail. Do a few more jars than you think you need, maybe, if you're going to do it that way. And then you've got some comparisons. You know, a few will will work. Visual inspections always work really well. Know what to look out for. We right. do hear growers sometimes who are like, hey, like, I've um, got all my jars and, you know, it, it really stinks in here. Like, what? why does it smell so bad? And we're just like, you've got so much contamination. <laughs> like, this is not what it should smell like. Like, it shouldn't smell terrible, you know? So yeah, just just know what to look out for, I guess. And if it stinks, it's it's bad. I actually think it's better to have like a few bad grows. Yeah. Because then you know what to look for. Like we talk to a lot of people who send us pictures of mycelium growing and they're like, is this mold? And it's like, well, you know, in a way it, it's all a fungus and I get what you're saying. So it's really good to see what's not mycelium and what is. Yes, and I think that actually can be the uh, tomato stage of mycelium growth, right? Because I, having done a little bit of DIY cultivation myself, sometimes the mycelium does kind of look like mold. So, I mean, what are those two different types of mycelium growth, and what might we be confusing with mold? Yeah, so I think with the tomentose and the rhizomorphic, so the rhizomorphic is like the long root-like strains, right? And um, they kind of like reach out across the substrate and they look almost like veiny or root-like, basically rhizomorph is, is what that means. And then the tomentose is the like little fuzzy growth. And I think the the difference between those two growth, like with, with psilocybin cubensis, it can switch between those growth stages. 
And if you're looking at your grow, sort of like making its way along and you're getting used to what it looks like and it suddenly switches, you think, oh my God, something's changed. That must be bad. But it could just be like changing its growth patterns at, at that particular time. So, you know, you can work on isolating specific strains or, you know, certain genetics that will always be tomentose or always be rhizomorphic. But yeah, just, just knowing the difference between those two is, is really good as well to know not to confuse like just because it's changed its morphology doesn't mean it's a contamination problem it's just a quirk of biology i guess well and we all know that psilocybin containing mushrooms bruise blue when you handle them is that the case for mycelium as well and could that potentially throw off growers if mycelium starts bruising blue or is that a valid concern this is something i kind of heard on online forums yeah, if you um if your substrate is a one that you'll be using like a few times, so even with like PF Tech cakes, when you you know pick up the cake to pull off the mushroom, it can bruise blue where you've where you've held it. Or like with the monotub, you know we recommend people do like a few flushes with their monotub and soak it in between, and it can get very blue. But there's like a very distinct blue color to it. It's kind of like a like a more navy blue, mm. whereas like mold tends to be kind of more like teal, like more bluey green. Yeah, you pull out yeah, the color we, chart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this is why like we wanted the book to be so photo heavy as well, because like these things are so hard to describe in words. Like, you know, cobweb mold could be described in exactly the same way as rhizomorphic growth. And it's only really the fact that it grows so much quicker and it spreads out so aggressively that you can you could probably describe it to someone but it's so much easier to have a photo of it and um what we've been doing well what i did last summer was kind of like make sure some of my pf tech cakes were contaminated so i could get all these different molds to get these new pictures of different types of contaminants so that you know any second edition of, of the book we do uh, we can have like a, a visual kind of reference for that and we can also claim that any contamination we've done on purpose. So. On purpose, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Yes, you're trying to get that contamination. It's actually going to be the superstar of a second edition. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, just as a quick overview then of just the cultivation process, obviously there's a whole book. People can read through the cultivation process. But what's the general flow when you're talking about, and again, this will apply to any kind of mushrooms, but what's that general flow maybe from the very beginning to end and how you can keep that process going yourself. Yeah, so there's a there's a few ways to get started and you can make it more or less complicated depending on your requirements, but I'd say the the most simple process is spores to grain to bulk substrate. Then you get your mushrooms and you go back to spores and you start the cycle again. So it's like a three-step process. So that's assuming your spores are nice and clean and you know it's going to germinate well on your grain. You can then like multiply your grain out into more and more jars until you've got the right amount that you need put it into your bulk substrate let that grow for as long as is required for the species that you're working with depending on you know tailor the substrate requirements to to what you know the species likes and then grow your mushrooms and then take your spores from the mushrooms and then you can get started again another more complicated process is it's good for kind of picking out good growth patterns in the beginning and taking them all the way through to the end and it's it's a bit better if you're if you're trying to like dial in the process a bit more so you can take your spores into agar 
your agar into grain and then your grain into bulk substrate and on the agar you can do all your selection especially if you're not sure where the spores came from you can make sure that they're not contaminated so you don't spend weeks growing mold you can do it all in agar really quickly find the areas of growth that are good transfer them out that sort of thing then you can also use liquid culture in the process which is a really good way to step up the volume of mycelium really really quickly and then you can use that into grain you want to make sure you're putting in good quality either spores or agar into that liquid culture because yeah you can it's really hard to distinguish between mycelium and mold in liquid culture because you don't have as much contrast when everything's sort of fuzzy and floating around so make sure you've got a good liquid culture which is where agar comes in and then you can go through grain and you know through into bulk substrate liquid culture also stores really well long term in the fridge which is a good way of having something that's ready to hit the ground running because spores can take a little bit of time you can just store it in the fridge for like a year or two depending on the species yeah for me i had always noticed a lot of problems with liquid culture in the past just because i couldn't tell what was mold and what wasn't i was also getting a lot of contamination Uh, so for you guys what's kind of your ideal liquid culture mix yeah, so I think I normally just use um, straight honey for most of my liquid cultures. I find that does the job. I've noticed more nutrient dense things like malt extract. You can sometimes get like way too much growth and it can become quite hard to inoculate. Like, you know, you'll block your syringe or something like that. It depends on the species you're working with, but you can get these huge like mycelial mats forming almost on the top. And it's like, okay, that was maybe a little bit too much nutrients. So you can, you can play around with the ratios, but I find honey works really well. Yeah, mine is, um, the one I have in the fridge right now is a honey one. And I also find that that's kind of forgiving. Like I've had um, a little bit of contamination show up and then I was able to kind of get rid of that and save the rest of the culture, which I'm not sure if that's the case with the others too. Well, that's actually a great point. And something you point out in the book, how we talked about contamination, how it can you know ruin a grow. But if you get a little bit of contamination at the liquid culture or agri-plate stage, you do a great job talking about how you can still rescue uh, some of that strain from those environments too. Yeah, definitely. I think that's just from bitter experience, really wanting to hold on to those grows, you know. <laughs> I should say, like, people should really not take risks with mold because, you know, it's like a serious thing. You really do not want to consume any kind of mold. It can be really bad for your health. However, if you've come through a grow over like several months and you've got to your monotope stage and you see something on the corner, you can kind of like chop it off and isolate it and see what happens you know there's a point at which you can kind of if you're eagle-eyed and kind of lucky you can get it just at the right stage but it can also spread like wildfire yeah we always recommend people like if they've got a grow that looks a little bit weird in amongst a bunch of other ones move it somewhere else like if you really can't bear to dump it then move it somewhere else and keep an eye on it if it starts growing fast you're going to have to dump it and that's going to have to be outside because you don't want to open that too often inside your growing area because all those spores you know that tiny little patch of green will be millions if not billions of of spores that will then waft out into your environment and you've suddenly like inoculated your whole grow room with spores and that's not something you want to do yeah yeah and one of my early mentors and just teaching about kind of at-home cultivation would always say that when you are working with mold, if you are trying to salvage or remove any offending contamination to see if the rest of it's okay, give yourself 
a good buffer, whether it's an agar or whether it's on that substrate, give yourself a good buffer around the mold when you're removing it because they're actually like the, you know, to our naked eye, invisible strands already lacing out from what you can see. So it's important to give yourself enough of a buffer. But I tend to agree with Virginia that usually when I see mold, if I'm doing any kind of at-home cultivation, I bin it because I don't want that then contaminating my grow area. And then, you know, same question for bulk substrate. You know, what is your preferred mix of bulk substrate? And this gets into kind of an art and science, I think. A lot of people online go back and forth, you know, basically what's the best kind of mycelium food to create the most amount of mushrooms. But for you guys, what are some guidelines around bulk substrate? Maybe what's your ideal mix? If I can, I know Dr. K will have a great answer for this, but if I can just jump in and mention the the monotubble we got, like, just a ridiculous growth. Yeah, what's that recipe, it was, please? <laughs> it's the one we put in the book. So it was horse manure. And that's actually, like, I, I feel really emotional about it because we actually had a really lovely day, yeah. like, out in the countryside collecting horse shit. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, it was just really nice. Um, and I have, like, some beautiful pictures of that day. And then it's like, well, you know, that was the natural world and some horse, you know, did its business somewhere. And then we took that home and made like a ludicrous amount of shrooms. And I thought that was also just really easy as well. Yeah. So to me, that's the, that's the one I'll always go to now. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it was, it was nice to sort of bring in the, the horse manure, but since I've moved to a different area now, like horse manure is, is harder to find and you're definitely a lot more conspicuous when you're looking for it. You know, if you're crouching <laughs> down near a pile of horse manure it's it draws some strange looks so because you're testing it right you want it to be like nice and dry and the thing is that it shouldn't smell like horse manure so you're there crouched over a pile of horse manure picking it up and smelling it and people are like who is this guy like what is he doing (laughs) Um, i've been playing around a lot more with koya as well which again is another another good substrate it can be a little bit higher in mold horse manure has got a lot more beneficial bacteria in it, whereas coir has got a lot more trichoderma and other molds. But you know, if you pasteurize and you treat it properly, you can you can grow perfectly well on it. And I think the the most important for um, a monotub grower substrate is something that's nutritionally complex. So you know, you don't want a hundred percent coir, you don't want a hundred percent manure, although that would be more complex than coir. If you mix those two things together, then the coir is bringing something, the horse manure is bringing something. If you're bringing in things like coffee in small amounts or worm castings or things like that, you can, it, it depends on the species always, and it depends as well on the genetics. So you can't always say like this works for this species always and will always be great. Like if you've got really good genetics, it will grow on anything really well, or it might be really favored to one specific substrate. And you might try and grow it on something else and think, oh, well, that substrate doesn't work. But then if you have another line of the same species genetics, you might actually find it kind of prefers that. It's really, there's a lot of variability. And every time I kind of make any recommendation on optimizing something that is process driven, you've always got to remember the genetic side of whatever you're doing that there could be some variability there that makes it really hard to to fully understand what you're working with as a substrate you know yeah and as i'm asking about kind of the ideals you know how important is it to document kind of your attempts and progress and what works and what doesn't you know how's important how important is that for you guys to document what you're doing 
I would say that's hugely important and one of actually the first things you should you should learn label everything my god <laughs> and like <laughs> put get a little notebook you know that's just dedicated towards your things you know dates weights the things you're seeing um it can also be really helpful if you get into something like microdosing and you want to um take notes on how you're feeling a particular day and all those kind of things that's actually something that i've taken out of mushroom growing into the rest of my life so you know, I have sourdough cultures, I have all kinds of things, and I have a teeny little yellow notebook that lives in my like apron <laughs> where everything gets written down. And also if you brew beer, it's um, hugely helpful as well. So yeah, that's a, a really important thing. Dates as well, writing dates on all of your jars and things like this. You just, otherwise you won't know what's worked and what hasn't really worked. And you're undercutting your own ability to learn from what you're doing. Yeah. You know, obviously we've talked about then the whole cultivation process. And then there's that all important step of, you know, how do you start round two? And I think you guys do a great job of talking about that. How as, you know, a self-sufficient grower, you should be able to either keep grain going in a grain to grain transfer, maybe able to clone a certain mushroom from a different mushroom grow by breaking open the mushroom, taking some of the sterile tissue from the inside and culturing that out onto agar or in liquid culture. But one big thing you point out is the difference between that kind of genetic continuation of one individual versus the ability to germinate spores and kind of create something with new genetics. So what is the difference there and why is it important to be able to use both to kind of multiply your mycelial mass, if you will? Yeah, so I think with spores, you've always got, I guess maybe maybe we should start with like tissue culture because that kind of makes more sense. So you've got this concept of senescence, right? Which is like the, the theoretical limit that the number of times that any biological cell can survive. It's almost any. I think there are some that don't. I think lobsters is weirdly one of the biological cells that can keep going and obviously certain cancers they like lose their ability to senesce which is why they get so virulent stuff so but with mushrooms you're working with senescence you're constrained by senescence so you want to if you think about it in like a linear fashion every time the culture grows the cells are dividing and if you keep that going and you go from a grain jar to another grain jar to another and you keep going all the way eventually you're going to get to a point where everything's going to slow down it might start producing mushrooms you know it'll be more susceptible to contamination so we have like good procedures or you know generally there are good procedures for if you clone a mushroom then you create a master culture and you always take from that master culture and you kind of go out in like if you imagine it like a pyramid where your master culture is at the top you're trying to like widen that pyramid and you want to go across rather than down in straight line because if you continue that line as long as possible it's eventually going to get untangled and just genetically it'll be a bit of a mess so if you've got a good storage system good labeling system good master cultures then you can keep that one particular strain of genetics going for a really long time but if you notice things are getting laggy and you need to start again that's the time to pull out spores and sort of start again from first principles because you're going to have it's like a genetic reset because the whole recombination of the genetics has to happen at the spore level. And then you're going to have a new genetic line, which might 
be very different. It might not be very different to what you were working with previously as a pure culture, but you can then keep working through spores. So if you're finding your cultures are getting laggy or, you know, contamination prone, and you know you've been growing them for maybe a little bit too long, then it's time to go back to spores and, and sort of start again, if you like. Yeah, when I first started being able to expand things from agar, you think, oh, I can just keep this <laughs> yeah. same exact species going forever. And I think the book does a good job of reinforcing that idea of senescence and how important that is to be able to always have some kind of spore bank you can go back to, kind of like you're saying, start from square one if you need to. Well, it's also like, you know, looking at the natural world again and looking at how they grow in nature. And I think it's in this way, it's kind of analogous to like if you're growing cannabis and you can keep a mother plant that you keep clones from and you can keep that going for a long time. But like at some point, you're probably going to have to go back to seed. And that's because that's like the natural way of doing it. And all these things that grow, they want to grow in the healthiest way possible. And the way that they have learned to grow is the healthiest way possible for them. And it gives them, you know, greater genetic diversity and all these things are in place for a reason you know this is like we we need to learn from the natural world i think and while it is really fun to clone and was one of like my favorite things to learn because it was like magic you know go back a step i think and also spore prints are like super easy to keep yeah and you guys recommend then putting spore prints on tinfoil right because i think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of spore prints cutting off a mushroom cap letting it sit undisturbed on a surface as it drops its spores but you guys say that tinfoil is the best for using it for any kind of cultivation purpose yeah i think tinfoil is just because it's it's readily available and you know it it doesn't take up a lot of space in the in like a very small space you can have a huge stack of spore prints whereas you know if you had that on glass or something else you'd you'd start to because you can spore print in like a petri dish maybe but then you've got the whole size of the petri dish and if you're doing that then you might as well have a petri dish that's got living culture on it so you know spore prints give you on foil give you that just it's an easy way and you can have your little filofax and you can alphabetize it and you know do whatever you want and just keep a little a little bank of spores that way with very little space. Yeah. Now, one thing I skipped over was probably the most infamous grow method, uh, which is PF Tech. And I think a lot of people have probably heard of. Do you recommend PF Tech as kind of the starting place for beginners? And if so, why is it such a good one to begin with? So this is the one I learned first from Dr. K and it's also the one I tried to do beforehand and made such a mess of. So I won't say it's idiot proof because I was idiot enough to make a real hash of it, but there's a reason it's been so popular for such a long time and it's because it's kind of easy. It uses a bunch of things that you can readily get, you know, like the jars I still use are the ones that you get jam in here. Um <laughs> they're really easy. It's you don't really have to buy anything that is suspicious. It's all stuff you can get from like a like your grocery store or like a garden center and things like that. It's also kind of fun because you can watch it all happen. You know, like the glass jars, you can watch the mycelium growing and then in your terrarium, you know, you can just like keep that in your room, you know, and, and watch things go. Like you can actually, <laughs> I remember when I was growing once I had a friend stay and she was sleeping in the room where we were growing and she like got really attached to the mushrooms because you can literally watch them grow. And I also think that's a huge part of it and appreciating the process that's going on. But, you know, this book is five years old. I think in, in October it will be five years exactly. And there are things that have come up now that, you know, can be a lot easier. So one of those is the Uncle Ben's method. Right. Which, 
<laughs> I was highly skeptical of. Yeah. <laughs> but we've seen a lot of people um, find that really easy to use. So what is the Uncle Ben's method? And is this kind of the new best place to start for beginners? Yeah, it's tricky. I guess we kind of go back and forth on it. I think the failure rate on it is higher, but because you can get hold of the rice bags so easily, you can you can make a lot more and it's a lot less prep. So, you know, it, it depends what you really want to do. I think if you want to really like learn the process, it might not be the best, but it's definitely something that can work. And I think like, you know, people get quite angry about this newfangled method and stuff, but we've seen it work. We know that it works. We also just know it has a fairly high failure rate. Whereas PF tech is something that sort of, it introduces you as a beginner to the basics of the processes that you'll use later on. So things like sterilization, designing your substrates, that sort of thing. It really depends on if you just want mushrooms, then Uncle Ben's is a way way to do that. If you want to learn a bit more about the processes involved, then PF Tech might be a little bit better for that. And you know, you're gonna buy some of the equipment that will then like take you through to to bigger and more productive grows. So both of them have their advantages just for different things. For me, I think of it like um when you're learning to drive a car, you can learn to drive an automatic yeah. and you can drive, you can get to where you're going. But if you then go to a country like the UK, for instance, where automatics are really rare, you are going to be in trouble because then you've got to drive a stick. Whereas if you learn to drive a stick, you can understand the feel of the car more, you can get to feel what's wrong and what's right when you're driving. And then if you need to go back and figure it out from there, you can. Whereas you couldn't with the other way. So yeah, I think PF Tech is a really good way to start. And then, you know, if you want to make it easier, you can maybe go the Uncle Ben's method and see if it works. Yeah. And like with manual versus automatic car, it's just a lot more fun to do it. Yeah. To do it the way where you <laughs> yeah. actually have a bit more control and a bit better understanding of what's going on. But I guess nowadays, is the monotub kind of, when it comes to at-home magic mushroom cultivation, is the monotub pretty much the standard, you know, expanding some grain spawn out onto your whatever your chosen mix of substrate, just the maximal surface area, the whole tub's filled. I mean, is that kind of the standard now? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the good thing about mono tubs is you can kind of scale them to how risky you feel like being. So, you know, you can do like a 64 quart mono tub. And if that all goes right, then you're in for a great flush. But if it goes wrong, that's all of that substrate gone. Whereas if you split that 64 core out into some smaller ones, then not only do you kind of reduce the risk by having a bunch of isolated tubs that you can work with, but you know, you can try different things. You could try some on a heat mat. You could try not fanning some of them. You know, you can you can learn a lot more if you split things into monotubs that are of a smaller size. But generally, yeah, if you're going for if you're going for huge flushes, then monotubs are, are definitely the way to do it. And once you dial your process in, you can increase the size if all you want is yield. But if you want to learn more, you can split it into smaller tubs and sort of play around with it. And then what, you know, in this book, again, it's kind of an older book, but what's your guy's general cultivation method? Is it monotub? I know in the book you said you kind of do a little bit of everything. You have little experiments going. Is it kind of like you guys are settled on one method or do you choose a different method depending on what your goal is with that that round of cultivation? Yeah, so I think I 
really do sort of mix it up and I try things that are new to me a lot. Like I know monotubs are reliable now. I mean, most of the time I'm growing edible species. So, you know, I'm trying different species, I'm trying different substrates and different setups, you know, like growing oyster mushrooms on old genes or something like that. You know, that's a weird thing to do, but I've never tried it. Weird. Try it. Um, so yeah, there's like everything I think has its place. Like monotubs are good for like consistent yields. I mean, even PF tech, I will still use, like I talked about those spores that I wasn't sure if they were the right species. I thought I got a wood loving species and then I started to suspect that maybe um, one that would grow on PF tech. So I made wood versions of the PF tech cakes. So then made the standard PF recipe and I grew them all out. And sure enough, it grew and it wasn't the species that I'd ordered. So they're good for like small scale pilot grows, testing things out that you're not sure about. Rather than if I'd have done a monotub with that, I would have been really disappointed because I put so much effort in. But I'd just done a quick little PF tech check and it worked really well. It, well, it worked really well to tell me what I didn't want to hear. <laughs> I think I have I have kind of um Dr. K, when we're not working on the books, Dr. K is definitely the one who takes all the new steps forward and then reports back to me and sends me pictures and I'm like, what is even what what is going <laughs> on here? Um <laughs> whereas I tend to be like quite busy and home like a limited amount not over the last year, but in normal times. So I still really like liquid culture to PF tech, to grains and monotub. And then I keep some dry shrooms and then I would do a alcohol extraction. Um, and that's like a really quick, effective kind of stream for me to get everything that I'm going to need for like to carry me through the winter. Now, something that's come up a couple of times is this idea of species. And obviously this could be a huge conversation of itself, but you know, I've heard a lot of people relate different psilocybe cubensis species to like different strains of marijuana and you know you hear things like b plus or ecuadorians or da, da, da. how relevant are the species differences and are we finding out a lot more about basically sub varieties within the cubensis species i guess yeah to use that sort of cannabis analogy like it is a huge diversification of like a a product if you like sometimes because like people get really into like well we've got this strain or we've got like this strain and you know this strain has this effect and this strain has that effect but from experience it's not been something i've been super on board with i think like a lot of people say to us you know what strain should i pick because they look and they see all of these different strains of cubensis right because they're all the same species they can all interbreed but they're just like someone has decided to call this one B plus someone has decided to call this one, you know, penis envy or something. And there are morphological differences, but you know, the, the could be differences between effects and things like that. We just don't know. But I think for anyone looking to start out, pick a name that appeals to them because I think most of them are about as easy to grow as each other. So when a lot of people are trying to decide on a species, I think, sorry, on a strain, they get like a real sense of decision paralysis. And I'm like, just pick a name that sounds fun and go from there because it's all going to work. I actually get a lot of people asking us what strain um, in Veracomus to take for like different effects. Um, And they've obviously come from like a cannabis world. And 
in terms of effects, it kind of doesn't line up like that. Like, you know, you could take a, you could, you could smoke a haze and you know you're going to feel kind of heady, you're going to feel kind of creative. Um, and that doesn't really transfer over to the mushroom world. And also there, there are like some strains that are, you know, will get you high, but they don't contain psilocybin. So, you know, the uh, Amanita muscaria is, you know, the, probably the most well-known one, doesn't actually contain psilocybin. So learning about mushrooms in like how they grow and what they contain, I think is really helpful, but you also need to get out of that mindset of like, well, I will, you know, have some cubes and they will make me feel super chill. Or, you know, if I take these ones, they will give me ego death. It kind of doesn't really work like that. I've even heard different people's kind of questioning that within even the cannabis community of, you know, strictly sativas do this and indicas do this. So I think a lot of people are starting to question, you know, the exact effects attributed to certain strains in general. But then this is kind of a question I don't know if you guys will have a definitive answer to, but is there any kind of way of testing compound or uh, alkaloid content when we're talking about psilocybin or psilocin? Is there anyone doing that kind of testing or correlating that to effects? I mean, or is that largely not happening because it's still prohibited? Yeah, I think we're on the verge of maybe seeing that as, you know, we we see new like companies entering the space and doing some like fundamental research because a lot of it hasn't been done. I mean, you talk about the ecology of suppliers and I kind of want like an ecology of like analytical chemists who I can take my mushrooms <laughs> to and, and get right. them to like run it through a, a, a HPLC or something and get like some good good data on it because a lot of the data that we have is from, you know, that sort of interim period between the 60s and and now and you know there's a lot of variability you look at the methods that they've used the methods aren't always directly comparable you look at the conditions of the mushrooms and you know that can vary as well so doing like a really big systematic analysis of all these different species would be something i would love to read i don't know about other people but you know it'd be super interesting because there are more and more compounds being discovered in magic mushrooms that people weren't aware of or you know there's there's kind of like the old set of compounds which is like baocystin norbaocystin was one of the newer ones and then you've got even like beta carbolines and stuff like there have been some studies coming out from usona and places in europe where they found like new compounds even just like last year and so i think like having that analytical chemistry side of things and having more people look at it once it's easier to look at it from a legal perspective, then I think that's going to be super interesting. Well, and I know a lot of the research, at least here in the States, when we talk about kind of the medicinal side of researching psilocybin and its effects in a clinical setting, a lot of the focus now is turning to just artificially derived psilocybin or psilocin. I mean, do you see that line of inquiry scientifically as really losing the potential of of accurately assessing the medicinal properties of the mushrooms themselves, because you're just talking about a lot of other compounds that are present. You know, how much how much are we losing with that kind of reductionist model of just looking at isolated, you know, psilocybin or psilocin compounds when it comes to the clinical research? Yeah, so I think I can understand why there's an importance to focus on a single substance because you want to know that 
you know, your effects are reproducible. You want to control as much of the process as you can so that you know the effects you're observing are related to the things that you've changed. So if you're using like a variable source like a mushroom, I mean, some data suggests that wild species can vary in their alkaloid content by about 10 times. And home oh, wow. cultivated species can vary by about four times. So if you're doing a study with something that, that that is that variable, it's really hard to sort of pin down the effects when your baseline is so shifty. But I think, yeah, there are definitely, well, I won't say definitely because we don't know, but like there are other alkaloids present that we know of that we don't know enough about how they affect the brain. I mean, the psilocybin, and psilocin work on, you know, the the H52A receptor, which is one of 14 serotonin receptors in the brain. So there are all these other compounds that are structurally similar to psilocybin and psilocin. Are they affecting other serotonin receptors? We don't know. Are they affecting other biochemical processes in the body or in the brain? We just don't know. So I think seeing seeing more done around the other compounds is going to be really interesting psilocybin's definitely having its moment but there are other compounds that are of interest as well there's um there's definitely research being done into the entourage effect that's the right term yeah. right okay and for me it's similar to how like everyone is really desperate to get like a vitamin that is just a vitamin d or a vitamin k but actually if you remove it from the food source, you don't get the other vitamins, which actually help with uptake of that particular desirable thing. So, you know, it's actually better to, to eat an orange than it is to take a vitamin C capsule. So for me, they're kind of analogous too. Yeah, I've heard a lot of that same critique, which again, intuitively kind of makes sense to me with the holistic looking at the entire set of cofactors like that, the entourage effect that you're getting from other compounds. So it'll be interesting to see you know, as the research evolves, what directions we'll go in and how we'll start to even structure experiments that could possibly look at all those different variables of compounds. I think it's also important to question the motives of people who are doing all this research and looking in particular ways. So like people who want to synthesize psilocybin, what is that for? You know, this is something um, Dr. K and I have been kind of talking about recently. Having worked in the cannabis field, um, as things got increasingly decriminalized and increasingly legalized, you really see a lot of people who come in who weren't kind of on a grassroots level, you know, taking all the risks and doing all the work. You see a lot of people coming in just to capitalize off decriminalization and legalization. And as psilocybin is increasingly decriminalized, I think that's gonna happen increasingly and you can see it starting to happen now. And you move away from the full experience. You move away. There are some reasons. There are some things you need to do this for, you know, like psilocybin-assisted therapy, medical uses and things like this. But if it's people trying to capitalize off the kind of community and the work that people have done for a long time and remove the experiential kind of community feel from things, I think it's always worth being critical as to what those people's motives are. Yes, and of course, we've all heard that critique about different people, like you said, players entering the space. Whenever kind of money washes over a landscape, it inevitably changes that landscape uh, and not often for the better. So I think that is something really important to be cognizant of for people that have been part of this community or are interested in it from a grassroots level to be wary of people coming in with proclamations of kind of ushering in a new renaissance 
we have to always be wary of their motivations and what they stand to gain by kind of channeling things through <laughs> a model that they might benefit from. Well, this whole thing surrounding research and the influence of money, that could be a podcast on its own, but I do want to make sure we cover kind of the next stage from we just went over the whole cultivation, how to get an at-home grow started, how to keep it into the future. And then there's, you know, once the grow's over, you know, what do we do with maybe it's 2,000 grams of mushrooms like you guys had from your monotub? Or what, what do you do with the bounty or the harvest? Uh, and I guess we can start with drying. You know, what is the best way that we can actually dry? And then why are most people working with dried magic mushrooms? Well, for a start, it um, when you dry them, you make them a lot more mold resistant. So obviously fresh rooms, they will rot quite quickly. Mm. You can totally just eat fresh rooms. Like we, in our original book in the Bible and in the chef cookbook that we just wrote, I think in both of them, we have like a blueberry and mushroom smoothie recipe. Yeah. <laughs> but you do have to be cognizant of the fact that the dosing is very different with fresh and dry shrooms. So when you dry shrooms, they lose like 90% of their weight, uh, which is just the water coming out. So if you would, if a gram dry is a dose for you, then you will need 10 grams wet. Right. That's a thing to be thinking of. But like just most people will dry them because it's an easier way to keep them uh, effective for a longer time. Um, and it's really easy to do as well. Like, I mean, still my favorite method is just to put them on a sushi rolling mat <laughs> on top of the radiator or, you know, somewhere else that they're not going to get eaten by my cats. Um, but you can also use... <laughs> Keeping them away from your pets and your children, the thing to say there. Um, but you can use a dehydrator. Um, I know a lot of people kind of overthink it and think they're kind of going to over dehydrate their shrooms. Yeah, I think so. When you're drying them out, you're trying to reduce the you're trying to reduce the effect of the enzymes in the mushrooms from breaking down the psychoactive compounds. Really, there are some chemical degradation happening as well, um, oxidation and that sort of thing. But yeah, by removing the water, you're giving everything a little bit less ability to move around and inter interact, you know? So like if it's in a solution, it's going to chemical reactions just happen faster. If it's all dry, then things will kind of slow down. So that's kind of what you're trying to do with, with the dehydration. And yeah, it's always a tricky one around heat. I think people are really worried about applying too much heat and stuff. I would say like the main things to hit are like low humidity and high airflow. And then heat will just speed the process along a little bit. If you've got lots of air moving across the mushrooms and the humidity is low, then it will wick away a lot of the moisture quite quickly, even at room temperature. And then you can add temperature and get them dry fairly quick. And yeah, it just, it really sort of, you, you're kind of working on those three parameters, humidity, airflow, and temperature. Um, and if two of them are high, then you can worry less about heat. But, you know, there are some, there's some evidence that's come out recently to show that, you know, the degradation rates of psilocybin under different temperatures, you know, you have to really be pushing over like 100 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that's in Fahrenheit. I can never do the conversion despite how many times I do that neither can i but it's it's much much higher than 100 degrees fahrenheit yeah 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 you can you're kind of looking at that for a sustained period before you you have any problems not that i would suggest you take it up to that temperature because you're starting to cook then but you know you can certainly pass it through that temperature for 10 minutes or so and and not you're not going to lose everything in one go sort of thing it's a it's a slow decline in in potency 
It's 212 Fahrenheit. I just, I just Googled it. I Thank you for Googling that and uh, setting us straight there. Well, th- this is, you know, you just hit on something I hear it kind of whispers on the internet, which is, oh, you can eat the magic mushrooms fresh again, which I think is kind of a new thing for many people. It was a new thing to me to think, oh, you can just eat the fresh mushrooms, of course. Uh, but they also said that if you cook them like other mushrooms, you will break down the chitin in their skin and make them more palatable, less nausea creating. I mean, have you guys heard anything about that? And I guess, you know, we're coupling that with this understanding that anything over 212 degrees likely will break down psilocybin. But have you heard anything about that, like physically cooking the the fresh magic mushrooms? Yeah, I've heard a little bit about it. I think it's it gets it gets tricky because again, you're starting to introduce more variables when you're cooking. So if you're cooking it with something, then you're going to increase like the amount of stuff in your stomach. So some people prefer to take magic mushrooms on an empty stomach. Some people, it doesn't bother bother them at all. But some people prefer to, you know, lightly fast beforehand. So if you're cooking them on their own, then maybe it'll make them more palatable. Well, maybe not palatable, like slimy cooked magic mushrooms by themselves don't sound hugely <laughs> palatable. But, you know, if you cook that into a recipe, then you're increasing the amount of food that's going into your stomach. So if you're someone who has trouble with with any amount of having a full stomach while you're experiencing magic mushrooms, then that might not be the way to go for you. But if you're someone who, you know, can eat all the way through a trip and we do know people like that, then you can cook them and you can, you can try some other things. Yeah. Now for you guys, what was the inspiration to get more playful with some of these? Because when I was reading the psilocybin chef cookbook, you know, there's some pretty detailed recipes. We're talking about risottos. We're talking about, you know, grilled cheeses and hamburger. I mean, what was the impetus to start getting a lot more creative than just trying to eat, you know, the standard bag of, of dried psilocybin mushrooms? Oh, you know, that was me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have over the course of my 20s and now increasingly my 30s, my body is rebelling against me and all of the things that I have done to it. So all of the substances that I put in my body, if I do it over a certain amount of time, my body will just start to reject all of it. So um, I got really, really nauseated. I just got to the point where even eating them dry or taking a tea would make me really, really, really nauseated at the point of kind of throwing up, which is a real waste of shrooms and also like a really not, not a good place to start a trip from. So you know, like I mentioned before, Kay and I are both huge cooks and like big, you know, like home makers in a way. Not homemakers, like a like a oh, housewife, right. but you know, we <laughs> we pickle things, we ferment things, we bake bread, just hippies basically. So it was like a really easy step to just come and be like, look, I I can't just eat these horrible dried shrooms anymore. Like it made me even hate the taste of them in my mouth. And I think one of the first things we did was the ginger the ginger truffles, Mm. the ginger lime truffles, which is in our first book. Um, And they were really good for me because one, they're delicious. Two, um, you're working with crystallized ginger. So that's a natural kind of anti-nausea thing. The lime juice in them is kind of said to begin the breakdown from psilocybin to psilocin, which is what happens inside of your body anyway. Mm. So that's kind of, I don't think any research has been done into that, but it's kind of like, accepted within the community that citrus fruit and citrus juice will kind of begin that process so it means you'll get high quicker and they were just like really tasty 
And then we were like, well, what else can we do? What does a grilled cheese look like? And then we get into um, molecular gastronomy where, you know, you look at flavor pairings and there are a lot of things that go with mushrooms. So like blueberries and mushrooms are a really great flavor combination. Mm. And we'd experimented with these with kind of edible uh, mushrooms as well. And we were like, well, I mean, why the hell not? We have, we have so much mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we kind of went from there. Yeah. And, you know, I think some of the parts of the book where you talk about, you know, hey, we've all pretended like mushroom tea doesn't taste bad, but we all know it does. And, you know, I think a lot of people's experience with magic mushrooms, did you realize like how not palatable it is. So I really appreciate the amount of effort you guys put in into making things that just frankly sound delicious. Even if you removed the mushroom component, they would just be delicious things to eat. You know, are there some principles here? Because, you know, the alkaloids, the secondary metabolite that is psilocybin is alcohol and fat soluble. So are there any considerations there, you know, aside from what you just pointed out with lemon or lime, maybe accelerating a conversion process of psilocybin, are there any other chemical things at play when you're considering making these recipes? Yeah. So from a chemical point of view, it's, it's kind of tricky because again, if you can't quantify your end product, you're passing it through a human bioassay, right? So it's like a very variable set and setting, you know, the difference between two psychedelic experiences, you know, you might have the exact same dose two months apart and find a very different experience. Now, was that something to do with the chemistry or was that something to do with your environment? So it makes it really hard to, to make any, or to make too much of an authoritative claim around some things that we still don't know yet. But yeah, certainly with like the alcohol extractions, these are things that we've tried for ourselves and found that they work. So the alcohol extractions have worked quite well. Um, you know, you can extract it in just simple water. I mean, mushroom tea. So, you know, you can start playing with things like coffee. And, you know, we even did like uh, some some milk-based ones because it's, yeah, it will, it will get extracted in pretty much... You're mostly in your liquids, uh, so mostly water, mm. mostly alcohol, maybe a little bit in fat, but mostly it's your your water and alcohol combination. It was actually um, Alexander Shulgin did some pretty good analysis of it and kind of looked at some of the papers and gave his like authoritative view on all of these sort of chemical interactions, solubility and stuff with specific reference to psilocybin. So you can dig out some of his work on that and it's it's really interesting to read his notes on it. So we were kind of guided by that a little bit. And then, yeah, just sort of being like, okay, so if we know it's soluble in these things, what foods have these things in them and how can we sort of incorporate that in? And then bringing in things like citric acid and you know lemon juice, lime juice, ginger for nausea, the molecular gastronomy flavor pairings, having ideas around that. And yeah, we just sort of made our way through the through the book, sort of trying to think about all those things at the same time. I would also say um, anything that you make with water, you've got, you're going to need to kind of consume it uh, quite yeah. quickly, whereas alcohol extraction is kind of more of a longer term um, solution. You know, like that's the ones I keep in my freezer right now. One of the most interesting things for me was we learned about the Paul Stamets method, the cold oh, yeah. water extraction. The blue juice. And I just thought, like, there's, there's no way that works. And then we did it, and it was incredible. And, like, I mean, if you kind of want a visual 
impression. If you want to like impress somebody, that's a great one because it just gives you this, it's literally just shaking up fresh rooms with ice and leaving it. And then you get this amazing blue colored liquid (laughs) (laughs) which you can just drink. Like that's wild when you think about it. It's like the simplest possible method and it really works. Yeah, yeah. That one was definitely an eye catcher even amongst all the other incredible recipes. But, you know, there's some great cocktails in here. You guys have a Bloody Mary made with shrooms. You guys have a pina colada, (laughs) Kool-Aid, chai. And then, like I said, pasta, you get omelets, grilled cheese, desserts. I mean, it was really kind of opens up your imagination to, of course, you could start playing with all these things. But just having this as one of the ingredients, you guys have taken the time to actually think about some of these chemical interactions, the gastronomy. I definitely recommend anyone who's into cooking with any kind of mushrooms, I think this book is great to have, but especially if you want to find ways where you're exploring psilocybin mushrooms, you want to get over maybe that palatability aspect. That book is perfect and will definitely give you plenty of options. Do you guys have any favorite recipes from there that are maybe go-tos that you use for for mushrooms? And you said the truffles and the blue juice. Any other recipes that stand out that are some of the favorites for you guys? Mine is the cheesecake. But the main issue there is then you just want to eat the whole cheesecake so you can get real high real quick. Right, that would be the pitfall. <laughs> These things are delicious. And suddenly before you know it, you've eaten, you know, like a, an ounce of dry mushrooms. <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, um, I really like the ones where we pair it with blueberry because it brings in that like molecular gastronomy concept. Like I have these conversations with people when I'm talking about cooking and I'm like, hey, have you ever tried putting blueberry with mushrooms? And people are like, are you crazy? That sounds disgusting. And then they try it and they're like, holy crap, it's amazing. Like it's really good. So it's a good way to sort of introduce people to that concept of cooking, but through psychedelics. I like to think we sort of pulled a reverse Michael Pollan. So he started out as a food writer and then started writing about psychedelics. We started out writing about psychedelics and now we've moved on to food. (laughs) Not that we hold ourselves in the same level of esteem as Michael Pollan. He's absolutely incredible. (laughs) Well, and Michael Pollan's actually a great example of kind of the psychedelic renaissance that's going on. You have more and more people, especially where I live in the Bay Area, more and more people of every walk of life are starting to ask questions about, oh, you know, magic mushrooms. Oh, I heard it could help with depression. I heard it could help with, oh, have you heard of microdosing? You know, this is kind of the forefront culturally, it seems like, you know, where we're going. What do you guys think of the mass shift that's taking place? And then do you think that it should only be funneled through kind of therapeutic avenues? Or do you think that this should be a shift toward encompassing kind of spiritual and recreational use as well? Because I know right now, most of the push is flying under the banner of therapy and treating an ailment. Um, but, but how do you guys feel about that, that move? And you know, if we should be trying to uh, normalize use of psilocybin for other reasons as well? Um, for me, I, I welcome it. Uh, hugely like Dr. K mentioned Dr. David Nutt before um we're both huge fans of him in fact I think we went to see a a talk he did if I remember correctly something to do with like police against criminalization of drugs which is really good but he has a fantastic book called Drugs Without the Hot Air and he talks about like the therapeutic uses of things and you know um, psilocybin is a huge one but people are also starting to do like ketamine therapy for treatment resistant addiction I think yeah and like PTSD and I think 
any kind of like natural substance or any kind of thing that is available to us, if it can be utilized in a way that improves people's lives, then why the hell wouldn't we do that? You know, if depression is like a, a lifelong situation for a lot of people and when they've been through, you know, the talking therapies and things like this, it can be really terrible when they found that nothing works for them. And, you know, just to think that that's the rest of your life, that's a huge thing to get over, you know, and, and we lose people to that. We really lose people to the kind of nihilism that is born of that. So I think anything that can offer us a new avenue or a way to look at a new way to look at these things is fantastic. I also don't think you, we shouldn't limit ourselves to like medical use or therapeutic use, like, recreational drugs are fine like <laughs> this is what we advocate like science-based research and science-based information is so people can make their own informed decisions like you know you don't have to be ill to take shrooms <laughs> you don't you don't have to like have a goal in mind you don't really have to want to be a better person to take shrooms you can take them because you're an adult who's you know capable of making your own choices you know, people smoke, people, you know, alcohol is, is a lot more dangerous for you than a lot of these substances we're talking about, especially something that grows it naturally like shrooms. And there's a concept, Dr. K, I'm sure you can remember the proper term, but like the betterment of well yeah, people yeah. is um, something I, I really strongly believe in. And I think Dr. K does too. Yeah, for sure. I think as well, like kind of speaking to what Virginia said, I think one of the big reasons why psilocybin in its medical context and its therapeutic context is where it is, is because we know it is so well tolerated in humans. Like if you were to come with a brand new drug, you would have to take it through your basic clinical trial process, which can take sort of five to 10 years for a lot of these drugs. Psilocybin has kind of piggybacked off all of the underground research and the people who have been consuming it safely for, well, in America and in the UK, 50 years in, you know, Central America and other places, like hundreds and hundreds of years. So, you know, I don't think that, I think, yes, it's definitely important that people who need therapy have access to it and, you know, can treat depression, can treat anxiety, post-traumatic stress. But I don't think equally you can go to someone who's using it in like an indigenous ceremonial context and say well your method isn't valid because we just decided now that this treatment is medically justified and you've been doing it this way for hundreds of years and that's no longer valid anymore so i think there's got to be room for everything and even in a more sort of personal story is people we've had people contact us who have successfully treated their depression and anxiety with the use of psilocybin mushrooms now they've broken the law in most countries but you know are we going to say to them you know that experience that you had isn't valid because you didn't do it in the proper context with the chemically isolated substance and that sort of thing i mean we would always recommend that people who are going to try that for themselves be really careful you know find a support network find therapists like be aware of the legal restrictions we definitely wouldn't want to be the authority to tell people exactly what to do there but we still think it's a valid approach because we've seen people experience it so yeah i think there's got to be space for all all approaches i also want to say on the flip side of that none of these things are magic bullets like yeah. you know just this week i had someone contact us and was like how much of this do i need to take to like change my brain and it's like i i have such huge, huge empathy for these people because they're clearly in a lot of pain or they're 
clearly desperate for something for them to find something that will like offer a very easy route out of what can very often be a terrible lifelong experience but nothing works like that like you know even pharmaceutical drugs don't really work like that a lot of the time um they can be part of a a path or a process towards kind of like better mental health but that involves a lot of work on your side also sometimes sometimes it just won't work for you you know i know some people who I, they would get so much from psilocybin-assisted therapy. And I know other people who would hate it because their mindset just doesn't work in that way. They're, they wouldn't be receptive to all the positives. They wouldn't be able to kind of seed control right. in that way. Like, you know, there's there's no one size fits all kind of process here. And there is no magic bullet. And also you really you really risk using it as a crutch in the same way that, People think they can't function every day if they don't have five coffees before they leave the house. You can get to a point where you you don't think you can better yourself or you don't think you can approach good mental health if you don't have shrooms. None of this is true. You know, you have to look at it in a holistic way. You have to balance it within your life. So yeah, there's just no there's no one easy way to do it and then just be fixed, you know? Yeah. And it's coming from someone who isn't someone who consumes shrooms regularly, you know, I'm just a firm believer in every human being's sovereignty and ability to make decisions about what they put into their body. And then we all have to determine what that responsible use looks like for ourselves. And, you know, that comes with doing the work on yourself, realizing your health, being in touch with your body and what you need when you put a substance in it, how it's affecting you. Uh, and then, you know, obviously incorporating all the insights that we've gained over the years about set and setting and the importance that plays into any kind of experience. But I just think that shoehorning everything into just the medical model, you know, puts you in a place where, like you said, you're invalidating other expressions of a relationship with this substance that might be totally valid. And, you know, maybe it's just the stepping stone to get us there. We'll, we'll, time will tell, but I think it's important to be cognizant around this conversation that we're talking about a substance that now we can regard all the science is showing us as a relatively safe substance for humans and then responsible use of that like with coffee or alcohol or which i would argue is much more dangerous than mushrooms is dictated on the the personal level and we have to give people that that level of responsibility one quote that i really love out of the book talking about this responsible use and talking about it as a crutch just you guys write that, you know, be careful of using any substance to escape a reality that you should really set about changing. Uh, and that really hit me as something that I think a lot of us can take wisdom from. Yeah, definitely. And on that kind of note, I have had conversations with people through our, you know, Instagram presence and in, in kind of real life where people have been talking to me about like, you know, I'm just like really severely anxious right now and I'm looking for something to kind of alleviate that. And I'm like, well, you know what? We're living through a pandemic, <laughs> like anxiety. Anxiety is a completely normal and probably really helpful response currently. Like, do you, is there, a, like, we're also feeling quite powerless. Is this the thing that, is this the best situation in which you would like to take a psychedelic substance for the first time? Do you think that this is a great set and setting? <laughs> are you asking for this experience to, to do more than it ever possibly could? Like, are you, are you asking it to fix the situation that currently cannot be fixed? To me, these are all questions you should ask yourself as part of that kind of, you know, self-knowledge. Yeah. What has been the reception 
of these two books now. You know, I know in the community of mushroom aficionados that I know they've been hugely impactful, but how is that writing and releasing these books changed you guys? And what's that reception been from the community? Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting between the two different books. I think like when we, when we wrote the first book, we had no social media presence. We had no, like, I wouldn't say we have the finger on the pulse at our age, but like we had no way of like taking a, taking a good, look at you know who's engaging with this who enjoys it we kind of we knew how many books we were selling and and that was kind of it but you know as the as this all of this decriminalization has been coming through and you know the psychedelic renaissance or whatever you want to call it we've just we've had so much more engagement with people who have had like really valuable experiences and you know being able to interact with people on instagram has has been great and then when we had the second book come out it's been really strange because we already had the the kind of contact with with people who are following us and you know it's it's a completely different experience with the second book because we we were watching it happen in real time rather than waiting until our publishers told us how it was doing so it's it's really strange because i feel like we didn't really know what was going on with the book at the start of the first book and now we know so much more about the second book and how people are receiving that and it's been it's been really interesting to compare those two yeah it was the first one was a real slow burner because we didn't have any presence you know it was coming out into like five years ago we we're in a very different place to we are now in terms of like cultural conversation decriminalization right. and whatnot and you know like you said there has been a kind of mushroom renaissance in the last you know four or five years which we were very lucky to kind of just get in before that really but i remember like i hate amazon but Amazon is the way most people sell their books now. And I remember thinking, I remember working so hard to try and get us 50 reviews for the book <laughs> yeah. because that's like the point at which you tip over on Amazon and they start recommending you. And um, that just happened for the cookbook. Like there it was no effort whatsoever. So yeah, the, we have built the community around the book or I should say the community has built itself around the book um, over a period of, you know, five years. And it's been really beautiful, to be honest, like, you know, people really come to us and kind of bear their souls a little bit or like, you know, they're like, I've been doing this and it's what am I doing wrong? And you could say, oh, it's this, like, right. <laughs> just give this a go. And it can it can really put them on a new path that leads them somewhere uh, fruitful. And I just realized that's the perfect word. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, it's really brought us to some great places, too. Like Dr. K went to. Um, the fungi academy and made some great friends there and yeah it's just been really fantastic yeah and i guess that is kind of a responsibility when you become a leading figure in a movement like this where so many people are interested but so many people are looking for direction it does kind of put that responsibility to then be someone who's giving out good information and suddenly your recommendations i'm sure feel like they matter a lot more (laughs) especially when you have more and more people coming to you it seems like there's been a community that's kind of built up around these works and you guys have kind of integrated in this larger, I mean, massive worldwide community about people interested in psilocybin. We definitely have had to kind of learn to deal with that responsibility too. I mean, like one of the things we have a pretty hard line on is we don't help people ID uh, wild mushrooms that they've found somewhere because like the, you know, again, people don't know, we could be any idiot on the other 
end of like social media, you know. So part of it is I want to tell people not to trust other random people on the internet because we are still random people on the internet. But also like it's just so dangerous. I don't we don't want to, you know, it's almost impossible to tell everything by a picture. We don't want to give bad advice and then someone has a terrible time. But I think part of that responsibility has been saying, don't just listen to us. You know, yeah. read these people, read these books, learn for yourself, understand the science, understand what's going on and learn to come to your own position and then see whether ours is valid. You know, like think critically around us, but around everything to do with it as well. And then at this point, what do these books mean to you? And what do you hope that people take away from, from reading them? Yeah, I think kind of building on the idea of don't be scared to try things for yourself. You know, like we will always, with, with these books, we've been able to provide some really good guidelines, I would say, for people to follow that will work and give them results. But like try things for yourself, you know, like that's the way you really learn is by making lots of mistakes. So I think like that's one of the things that we we try and instill in people is like don't expect authorities to tell you the way to do something like figure that out for yourself like learn a bit make some mistakes reach out to other people you know do that kind of thing so i think yeah from from the book it's just been amazing reaching out to people and and sort of building yeah building that community really and being part of the learning process like people tell us when we make a mistake and we take that on board you know like it's it's difficult mm. when you write a book because once you've written the book your words are written down and you know you you might have to edit them later and you might look at that in, in a few years time and be like you know what? i wish i'd have said that differently or you know so we we appreciate it when people come to us and maybe not always in the best sort of attitude they might say like hey you did this and it's terrible and we're just like oh god yeah they're right <laughs> um, but you know we we try and like bring that information in and we think overall we we've got a book that we're pretty happy with i don't know How, what do you think virginia yeah i mean like I've written other books as well and there always is you get you know you put all your work into it and then you get it back and a printed copy and you're like oh my god we've printed all these copies and you open one book and you immediately <laughs> see the thing that you should have seen when you were doing all the rounds of proofing and you're like oh, man we spelled that wrong or my worst thing is on the PF Tech recipe, we missed out how much coffee yeah. to put in. And I have had like a thousand people tell me this. And every single time I, I, I know, I knew a week after we published the book. <laughs> the first page I turned to. Yeah. It's just always the way that we're publishing. And also like it takes so long. Right. You, you will finish a book um, and then nine months later, you will have it in your hands. It's just incredible though. We could never have imagined so many people would read the book. Like, you know, we did the first print run and we were like maybe in five years we'll sell all this and I think we've done like four or five reprints now we are starting to think about doing a second edition you know just there's so many things we want to update there are so many new things you know science doesn't stop you learn new things all the time things get outdated so yeah I'm I'm really looking forward to kind of working on that second edition if that's something we can make happen yeah that'd be great I think a lot of people are eagerly awaiting that one. And it's been interesting to see you guys become part of the fabric of this community, you know, despite ob the obvious need to remain relatively anonymous. Uh, and it's just something I can relate to because I don't like to give out my name and I kind of keep that secret as well. I have to say, like, Dr. K ended up on a Zoom call with um, Paul Stamets oh, yeah. last wow. year. Yeah. Wow. And we were both 
You're both really not being cool about it. <laughs> Scrambling for the mute mute button while I scream. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. So it got put you in a place where you get to meet some of the mycological idols out there. Yeah, he was kind of blasting through really quick. I was really hoping I could grab him and have a chat, but he was, you know, he's always in high demand. But yeah, seeing seeing my faceless avatar right below his on the screen was like a pretty good highlight. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, where can people find the book and where can people find out more about you guys and your work? They can find us on Instagram is the best place and we're at The Mushroom Bible. Um, we do actually have a Facebook page under the same name, but we don't really use it because um, because I hate Facebook. I can definitely relate to that. I don't, I don't do Facebook either. So Instagram is the best place to find you. And then I'm assuming the book is on you know amazonbookshop.org, all the usual all the usual places. Yeah, and also you can go and um, ask your bookshop, your local bookshop to order it in. Like we were, I think it was in Denver, the booksellers at Barnes and Noble got us in there. Uh, and I love that. That made me yeah, so happy. That was great. Yeah, I have a feeling you guys are of the mind to avoid the behemoth that is Amazon. And uh, Virginia just confirmed that for me. So yeah, guys, get in there, <laughs> request it at your local bookshop instead of going the Amazon route maybe. Uh, and then I'm just going to move into some questions that I ask all my guests. And the first question is a mushroom that you love and why. And I might say, aside from Psilocybe cubensis, because I think that would just be too easy for you guys. Um, and I know you love mushrooms other than psychedelic varieties. So what's a mushroom that you love and why? Maybe we can start with you, Dr. K. So yeah, linking back to, I guess, the whole seasonality thing, like right now, it's pretty like deep winter in the UK and it's pretty cold. And I just started getting out a little bit more. And I, I think for the last few years, like I've gotten into foraging quite a lot and identifying different like wild species and things and um, finding something that is growing in winter was not something that I'd not really thought of before. But then I've been going out recently and I've been finding lots of woods here and I've been finding lots of velvet shank or like enoki. And those two I really like at the moment because it's pretty much all there is out there. They can survive freezing, you know, you can you can snap them off a, a frozen log and then, you know, they'll be they'll be fine to use in, in cooking later. And especially with the velvet shank, you can really see the morphological change between the stuff you buy in like a supermarket, those really long white mushrooms that you get in a lot of like soups and things, versus the wild species, which is bright orange and like way smaller. And it's just amazing to look at two mushrooms and be like, these are the same species they've just been grown in different conditions so yeah those are my two favorites right now at the moment and then what about yourself virginia um i always love like lion's mane it just looks incredible um but i'm also going to take the coward's way out and say it's like my mycelium <laughs> like the actual mycelium that i love so much like the further and further you get into it and the more and more you research it's just like absolutely crazy substance really a big general question then, what has this relationship and really intimate relationship you've developed with cultivating your own fungi, what's this relationship with the fungal organism brought to your life or, or how has it changed your life? Um, for me, it's like given me a much more objective and holistic view of not only the natural world, but myself and my place within it. You know, so we mentioned Entangled Life by Melanie Sheldrick there, but also there's a, a book called um, Fermentation is Metaphor by Sandor Katz, which 
sums all this kind of stuff up and these processes up so well. And it talks about like, you know, everything is changing. Everything is always reacting, growing, shifting, responding. Nothing is is an end. And there's always the possibility of change, of betterment. Like, it's, it's I guess it's really weird to say that growing psilocybin mushrooms has given me a political imagination but like it's taught me that like there always there is always a way and there changes changes there and it's you can you can better things you can create a better place you can create a better world you can create a better self um i realize this is the most hippie uh, (laughs) answer i could ever give but i'm afraid it's true Well, it's absolutely true. A conversation I just had with someone, we talked about this ineffable quality of fungi and mushrooms that somehow lead to conversations about human organization and conversations about morality and conversations, obviously, about the interconnectivity of all things, because that's what mushrooms do. But yeah, they are this enigmatic vehicle to kind of expand into these other realms of thought, somehow make us better humans. So I definitely think you hit it on the head there. What about you, Dr. K? Yeah, really similar. I think, you know, it's always as someone from like a natural sciences background, it's, it was kind of shocking to me through the cultivation of magic mushrooms and learning more about mycology from like a self-taught perspective. It's always been sort of running in parallel to any biological science work that I've done. And Mm -hmm. I remember reading some of the most basic concepts in mycology in my twenties and being like, hang on a minute, there's a whole taxonomic kingdom here that has been excluded from my education as a child and like realizing like how fungi fit in that place of they close the loop around open-ended processes that you get from a lot of like industrial agriculture where waste is like some externality for like someone else to bear or like it'll go out as you know emissions and you know with climate change and you know certain areas that are being impacted by the harmful like industrial agricultural processes you kind of see how fungi can can be used in a lot of like permaculture projects and food sovereignty projects to like bring that waste back into the process again and and restart the process you know whether you're making compost whether you grow mushrooms or you know fermenting food in your kitchen it's all like a fungal process and it really like links all these ideas together and yeah i just it's it's been really interesting to bring fungal processes into home cooking as well as like permaculture projects and growing and and small scale projects like that that reduce your dependency on on larger global forces that can feel sometimes a little bit abstract like you have your you don't feel like you have a lot of control over that whereas when you're producing your own food with a community of people like it's a lot more real and tangible i think again mushrooms are this vehicle that get people into permaculture but even ideas of self-sufficiency and decentralization partially because that's exactly what they model as mycelium that i think you guys are hitting it right on the head with how a lot of us feel fungi and their influence on our lives well uh, virginia dr k this has been a fascinating conversation for me you guys have been able to answer a lot of my really basic questions like i said from the outset i am not the expert about psilocybin so you know these books were extremely educational for me as a beginner but i think anyone out there no matter how advanced you are We'll get a ton out of both the psilocybin mushroom bible and of course the mushroom cookbook because i don't i haven't heard of anyone going as far into cooking with magic mushrooms as you guys have gone so i, I highly recommend these books to anyone interested at all in psilocybin but i think they're great to have in the library of any mushroom lover because 
they hit on points that will apply to any part of your relationship with fungi. So uh, Virginia, Dr. K, thank you so much for, for making the time and coming on the Mushroom Hour. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been so kind. Yeah, thanks so much. Super grateful for you to have us on. It's been really fun. These last two hours have gone by in a flash. <laughs> <laughs>